0: In 1558, when Spanish explorers were on a journey to discover Santa Fe, New Mexico, they were forced to cross the treacherous and hostile Chihuahuan Desert. The desert, a dry, crusty, brutal tormentor, killed nearly 200 of the colonists by slowly wicking away the water in their bodies. They stumbled through the cacti and tumbleweeds in what seemed like a drunken stupor, but in reality was deep dehydration. The few who survived were saved by a fortuitous rain, and would forever remember their passage through the desert as the journey of the dead. Even in modern times, the desert hasn't stopped looking for victims. Park rangers still find dehydrated hikers rambling around incoherent, some barely able to stand. But on August 4, 1999, just a stone's throw from a trailhead, park rangers would come upon something they'd never anticipated the body of a man covered in stones, his apparent killer resting in a tent nearby. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Let's take a walk through the desert, and don't forget your water. Rafi Kadikian graduated from Northeastern University in 1999 with a journalism degree, and he spent that summer traveling in his jeep across the country. He wrote of his adventures and even had some of his stories published in the Boston Globe, where he'd done an internship. In the closing segment, he wrote, My trip has been caked on my tires, dripped on my boots, and seeded into my memory as one of the greatest experiences I could have imagined, and God willing, I'll get the chance to do it again. After his internship, his job had nothing to do with adventure or travel writing, which was his real passion. Instead, he wrote public relations articles for a Boston financial firm. He didn't love this job, much preferring to follow his dream of becoming a travel writer. As I understand it, travel writing doesn't typically pay well, but if Raffy found just the right story, one with some excitement and intrigue, maybe he could make it in the business. David Coughlin was Raffy's best friend. They met in 1994 through mutual friends. David was the yin to Raffi's yang. Where Raffi was an adventure seeker, David was grounded and organized. He got things done. His job after graduation was to work on traffic policy. I don't know what that job entails, but the name makes it sound as exciting as watching paint dry. David was 26 years old, 6 foot tall, and muscular. Raffi, at 25, was shorter and stockily built. Over the five years they'd known each other, they'd become very close friends. They'd call each other nearly every day and loved going out to bars together. In the spring of 1999, David decided he'd move to California to pursue a graduate degree at the University of California, Santa Barbara. It was Raffi's idea to turn this trip into an epic road trip. It might be their last chance to party together before real life began for the both of them. They left Boston on Friday, July 30th, and headed to Raffi's parents' house in Pennsylvania. They spent the evening drinking and hanging out, then woke the next morning to drive further west. This became the routine for the next several days. They drank beers and shot pool in Nashville, Tennessee, then drove on to Austin, Texas. They spent most of their nights in campgrounds talking, drinking, and writing in a journal they both kept. The journal, a simple 5 by 7 spiral notebook, was pretty unremarkable. It had been a gift to David from his girlfriend. Inside the front cover, she wrote, While you're away from me, you'll be in God's hands. Over the course of the trip, the men would take turns writing in it. This simple journal would become one of the main pieces of evidence in a trial for murder. The contents would become either a horrifying account of a camping trip gone wrong, or one of the greatest alibis ever written. On August 4th, six days into their road trip across the United States, they pulled into Carlsbad Caverns National Park in New Mexico. They had driven over 550 miles that day, and they were tired. It was about 30.30 on a Thursday in the afternoon. Raffi asked the ranger at the information desk where they could camp for the night. The two men didn't take time to see the 14-acre cave chamber the park is famous for. Instead, they decided to take a short hike and settle down for the night. The ranger on duty told Rafi the nearest place to camp was Rattlesnake Canyon. He pulled out a map of the park to show Rafi the way. This map covered over 33,000 acres of wilderness, but Rattlesnake Canyon Trailhead was only a 10-minute drive down the road. They'd drive in, park there, and then hike a mile or so into the place they wanted to camp. The ranger on duty warned Rafi that there was no water out there. He needed to carry it in, and the ranger recommended at least one gallon per person per day. Rafi had spent ten weeks in a tent the year before. Roughing it was in his realm, but for reasons only he knows, he ignored the ranger's advice. He quickly filled out the camping permit, and then he and David drove the three-and-a-half miles to the trailhead. They unloaded their gear and locked up the car. As they hiked into the desert, they carried only three quarts of water, less than a single day's recommended ration for one person. As they hiked along and marveled at the steep canyons, the rocky, bone-dry riverbeds, and the cacti before they encountered the trailhead. Every fifty yards or so, they passed a pile of rocks stacked in a pyramid shape. These rock cairns marked the trail. They hiked about a mile and a half before pitching their tent. As the sun began to sink behind the canyon walls, the sky grew darker, and before long the stars appeared. In the darkness of a desert, without much light to pollute the sky, the stars appeared brighter and invited eyes to gaze at them. The two men drank quite a bit of their water and used it to boil hot dogs. I don't know about you, but when I've camped, it's easy to just cook hot dogs over a fire or in a pan instead of boiling it, especially if water is a concern. Soon they would realize that they had wasted that precious water. They spent the last peaceful moments of their trip chatting by the fire before going to sleep for the night. If Raffy's account in the journal is true, the next morning they headed back towards the car. The rock cairn should have pointed the way, but somehow they walked right past the tee in the trail, where the path from the car meets the path they were on. Somehow they lost themselves in the canyon gorge. Along the way they may have lost something else—the park map, which investigators would later find stuck in a bush. By 2 p.m., the men, who were only prepared to come in for the night, were hot and uncomfortable. The sun was scorching their skin, and the temperature had reached nearly 100 degrees. They were short on water, so they tried to ration it. Raffi tried to hydrate them by cutting blood-red fruit from the prickly pear plant. This is a cactus, and they would suck the bitter liquid from the inside. Sometimes the fruit tasted sweet, and other times it was really bitter. As evening settled in, they bedded down in a spot that Raffy believed was somewhere south of the exit. Their legs felt heavy and their mouths drier than they'd ever been before, but despair hadn't set in. That night, they thought they saw headlights in the distance. They believed a road was near, and the next morning, they'd head for the spot they had seen the lights. In the journal, Raffy wrote, help, help. We filled out our backcountry card on Wednesday afternoon evening, and we headed out. We camped Wednesday, started back Thursday morning, but couldn't find the entrance to the trail leading to the car. We looked all day Thursday, slept there Thursday night, and saw headlights along the mountain at midnight. We're headed for that peak, Mountain 3. We've got minimal water and have been eating cactus fruit. We need help. We've headed toward what appeared to be a ranch foundation to begin with. Then, if we reach the car, we'll go to the visitor's center and then attempt to come back for our gear, carefully. So that Friday, at 7.30 in the morning, they headed for the area they thought they had seen the headlights. They followed a map that Rafi had drawn from memory. As the day wore on, it became apparent that Rafi's map bore no relation to reality. The small sliver of hope that they had felt began to disappear when they drank the last of their water that afternoon. Not even nightfall brought relief. At 7 p.m., the temperature was still in the low 90s. In the heat, they built a small camping spot where the rangers would later find them. As night fell, not even the beauty of the night sky would distract them from their fear and despair. They recorded their feelings in the journal. Raffi wrote only two lines. We will not let the buzzards get us alive. God forgive us. David wrote to his girlfriend, saying, Baby, I write this with a shaking hand that was not intentional. I swear I don't know what to do right now, but I am in utter agony, and I know you would understand. I love you so much. I've barely eaten and drank since Wednesday evening. No one is coming to help. He then went on with some personal messages, but it was obvious that he was scared. The next morning, they mustered up all the strength they had to head off searching again, but the desert sun had them in its sights. By midday, the temperature was hotter than it had been, nearing 110 degrees. After a few hours of wandering around, the men headed back to the camp. Too tired to hike any further— They did what they could to save themselves without moving too far from the shelter of their tent and the shade of the canyon walls. They collected fifty-pound stones from the canyon floor and attempted to spell out a fifteen-foot-long S.O.S., but they failed to finish the last S. The Chihuahuan Desert was probably laughing, mocking them with that word, so. So what? So who do you think you are? So death approaches. They tried lighting a fire so that the smoke might lead researchers to them. They hoped someone was looking for them. When they spoke to the ranger, they said they'd only be gone for a night. It had been three nights now. The smoke from the fire dissipated before it got to the top of the canyon walls. They decided they needed a bigger fire and darker smoke, so they tried lighting one of the sleeping bags on fire. Unfortunately... Unless a plane or helicopter had been flying directly overhead, it was pointless effort. Moreover, a large, dried-up walnut tree next to their camp would have burned longer and easier. They spent the remainder of their third day and night at the park, preparing to die. David wrote, Yesterday we never found the road, but reached what seemed to be the farthest reaches of the park. No one has come. We are planning to die. We muster all our strength. We have no food or water. No one has come. He wrote, I love you, to his parents and friends, then said, I'm so tired. I might write later. We never gave up. See you soon, David. Rafi wrote, David has asked that his remains be cremated and thrown over the edge of the Grand Canyon. I leave the handling of my remains to my family. If someone finds a really raunchy photo in the jeep, don't throw it out. Give it to Jeff. One last handoff, bud. I love you all, and I'm sorry, Raffy. The next day, the ranger stood at the trailhead next to the deserted vehicle that belonged to Raffy and David. According to the camping permit, the hikers had filled out, said that they were three days overdue. The rangers figured they were just extending their stay. Park visitors often did that, having decided the beauty of the canyon just needed more than one day's visit. Park visitors rarely lose themselves in Rattlesnake Canyon. Still, it was hot. The ranger had noted the temperature back at headquarters was 95, but out in the heat with the sun reflecting off the limestone walls of the canyon, it felt like a giant oven, and the temperature was at least 10 degrees hotter. After about 15 minutes of hiking, The ranger stopped at an overlook. From that overlook, he could see down to the floor of the canyon. About 250 feet off the trail, he saw the glimmer of a purple and green tent. As he worked his way across the canyon floor to the tent, he started to feel uneasy. He saw plates, camping equipment, an empty plastic container. Things scattered all around the tent. He would later describe the scene as having an air of panic. The sides in the bottom of the tent had been ripped out, leaving only the fly covering it. As he approached, he saw a disheveled young man sitting inside. When the man heard the sound of footsteps, he rose. His first words were, "'Please tell me you have water.' As the ranger handed Raffy his water bottle, he noted that Raffi had long, red scratches running down the length of both his arms. They didn't look like cactus cuts. The young man drank heavily, then vomited, a common sign of dehydration. Just wet your lips, the ranger told him, as Raffy took another drink. The ranger looked around for the second camper, but saw no one. Where's your buddy? he asked Raffy. Over there, Raffi replied, pointing to his right but all the ranger saw was stones, cactus, and desert scrub. Where? the ranger asked again. Right there, Raffi repeated. He pointed to a pile of large stones thirty feet away. It was about seven feet long and knee-high. As the ranger walked over to it, his stomach turned. He carefully pulled back a large flat stone that sat at one end, and beneath it he saw blue tent cloth with a bump rising in the center. It was David's nose. Raffi calmly explained, I killed him. He begged me to do it. Then Raffy handed over a four-inch folding knife. It still had David's blood on it. He told the ranger what had happened to them over the previous few days, and that only a few hours earlier, he had stabbed his best friend twice in the heart. Minutes later... The ranger would call a hospital to have Rafi airlifted. While they waited, they checked his vital signs. The strange thing was that Rafi's blood pressure was normal. Usually, dehydration victims have a very low blood pressure. As the ranger asked Rafi about the weather in Pennsylvania to keep him calm and distracted, Rafi, who seemed healthy and fit, was able to answer his questions perfectly the ranger thought it was strange because usually when they find victims that are dehydrated out in the desert, they'd be rambling and incoherent. At one point, Raffi looked up at the sky and jokingly said, where is that damn chopper? My grandma could fly a chopper better than those guys. The rangers bristled. Why would Raffy be joking around when he had just killed his best friend? The helicopter would lift the men out of the canyon and drop them at a medical center 30 miles away. The sheriff's office brought in FBI agents because the killing took place on federal land. They all had questions for Rafi. The first was, why didn't you bring more water? The second was, how could you kill your best friend instead of telling him to hang in there and tough it out or drag him along and not give up? But Rafi had quit talking. He had been treated for dehydration, and he recovered quickly, and only a couple hours after being admitted, he was released into the hands of the Eddy County Sheriff's Office. They arrested him for murder, and within days, one of the best criminal defense attorneys in the Southwest would be doing all of Rafi's talking for him. This tragedy began with a series of small mistakes. The journal recorded the first mistake, which was not bringing enough water. If you were to die of thirst in the desert, having drunk your last drop within a half a day, even most people would begin to feel weak as their blood volume starts to dwindle and the body starts to function less efficiently. The heart begins to pump blood away from the extremities, causing the legs and arms to feel like dead weights. After 24 hours, the blood begins to essentially dry and sweat diminishes to nearly nothing. Then the body's temperature begins to soar, and the skin turns reptilian, rough and scaly. It loses its elasticity, and the body weight begins to drop rapidly. After 48 hours without water, you could lose as much as 6% of your body weight. You would feel fatigue, nausea, and your muscles would cramp. Dementia might set in. You might see things or feel an urge to run. You might try to drink your urine, which was something that Rafi and David did. Unfortunately, your urine is a concentration of what your body needs to get rid of. David and Rafi tried to filter theirs through Rafi's hat before drinking it. Their urine was dark and thick, and they couldn't drink it. Seventy-two hours after your last sip of water, Your body weight will diminish by 10%. Your face looks gaunt, and your brain barely operates. Your body temperature could rise as high as 107 degrees. Most body functions are at near collapse. The lungs are strained, and your heart would beat erratically until it stops. Your death would come silently. David's heart stopped beating, but not because of dehydration. It stopped because Rafi had stabbed him twice. He claimed that he had murdered his best friend in an act of mercy. According to Rafi, David was in serious pain. The cactus that the men had been eating had made David feel very sick. Although the fruit, when fresh, can hydrate, for some people it causes nausea, vomiting, bloating, and diarrhea. In addition to the dehydration from the sun, David had been throwing up. His vomit was thick and choking. Rafi had had to reach into David's mouth to pull it out in order for David to breathe. Saturday night, neither man expected to make it out of the desert alive. As they sat next to the fire, trying to decide what they should do next, they made a suicide pact. Rafi pulled out his folding knife, and they tried to cut their arms. Rafi carved long scratches into his arms, but out of exhaustion or fear, his cuts didn't go deep. David was more determined. He slid the knife an inch into his right wrist, but then gave up before slicing up his arm. As the night went on, David wasn't feeling any better. He wanted to die, and sometime near dawn he asked Rafi to kill him. The killing itself couldn't have been easy, a four-inch blade would have to be placed in just the right location to achieve the goal of a quick and easy death. Raffy chose David's heart as his target. He planned to get the blade in between David's ribs and pledge straight into the muscle of his heart. The skin would provide a small resistance at first, but once through, the blade would slip easily into the chest cavity. Raffi pushed the knife in as far as it would go. He made contact with the heart, and when he pulled the knife out, blood sprayed, soaking Raffy's shirt and the surrounding stones. Raffy pushed the knife into David a second time, and after David's last sporadic movements, he went silent. And other than Raffy's own bodily noises, no human sounds were heard for the next seven hours, not until the crunch of the ranger's boots pierced the silence. A survival expert would weigh in on David and Raffey's decisions. He said the men should have found shade and waited for rescue, a strategy that could have doubled the survival time in the desert. The most inexplicable mistake was a 300-foot peak just above their campsite. If they had climbed to the top of it and looked to the northeast, they would have clearly seen the road they had driven in on. To the southwest, they would have seen ranch houses and another road and cars passing by on Highway 62. The only direction that led nowhere was west, in the direction they had headed. Even stranger was that they had food and drinkable liquid. The rangers found a can of baked beans, but for some reason David and Raffi chose not to eat it or drink its juice. Later, when they went to trial... Raffi's lawyer would explain that dehydration victims aren't known for having sharp minds. Sometimes they take their clothes off to cool down, they wander aimlessly, and sometimes they run. Raffi believed that the salt from the beans would dehydrate them further, so they chose not to eat them. These mistakes led to dire consequences. Raffi would be charged with murder. He had admitted to it himself. He recorded the events in the journal. It read, I killed and buried my best friend today. He'd been in pain all night. Around five or six, he turned to me and begged that I put my knife in his chest. I did, and then a second time, and he wouldn't die. He was still breathing. So I told him I was going to cover his face, and he said okay. He struggled, but died. I buried him with love. God his family, mine, please forgive me. There were sixteen entries in the diary, covering the time they were in the desert. It chronicled their desperation and despair. They wrote about their flagging stamina, and they bid farewell to their loved ones. Raffi's attorney described the stabbing as a fatal act of kindness, a death pact between friends And said that Rafi had intended to kill himself after ending David's life, but was too weak to do so. New Mexico law doesn't allow mercy killings or assisted suicide, so Rafi's attorneys suggested pleading insanity, arguing that he was mentally disoriented from heat and thirst. The prosecution had a different view. They believed the tragic tale of death and survival, most of it written by Rafi, was full of holes. Although Rafi was moderately to severely dehydrated, the sheriff said he wasn't close to dying when the park rangers found him. He was fully coherent and able to walk. His pulse was only slightly fast, and his blood pressure was normal. He'd only needed minimal treatment at the hospital before he was healthy enough to be taken to jail. Even worse, David's dehydration was also well short of critical. He would have survived had he not been stabbed twice in the heart. The local sheriff thought that Raffi's story was bullshit. He didn't believe that anyone could kill their best friend. He also thought it was pretty strange that one of the sleeping bags had been burned. He believed that Raffi had killed David in his sleep and attempted to burn the evidence. He felt there had to be a motive behind the killing. But he and the FBI searched and came up empty. No one had ever seen the two men are you? There was no love triangle, no money issues or business entanglements, nothing. They really were best friends. The investigators just didn't understand the logic behind the murder. Yes, they were doomed. They had no water. They were weak. They thought they were going to die. But somehow, Rafi had the strength to go around picking up 60, 70, and 80-pound rocks that he placed on top of David's body yet claimed he was too weak to complete the suicide pact. The prosecution would argue in court that where there is life, there is hope, and that we can't live in a society where people can kill other people just because they imagine they're in a desperate situation. They would seek a first-degree murder conviction, which would mean a mandatory life sentence for Raffi. David's body made a journey back to Massachusetts, and at the funeral, Contrary to the prosecuting team, David's family expressed support to their son's killer. They said if David were here now, he would tell us all to pray for Rafi. When this case came before a judge and jury, the defense settled on defending Rafi using involuntary intoxication as their defense. They couldn't use temporary insanity. Rafi was sane. They couldn't use coercion— David couldn't have forced Rafi into anything. However, maybe the lack of water and the effects on the human body would qualify as involuntary intoxication. Experts explained the effects of dehydration, and they fit exactly what had happened with both David and Rafi. If the judge and jury believed the experts, Rafi would face a much lesser jail sentence than he would for murder. Rafi pled no contest to second-degree murder. The judge determined that he posed no danger to society and that he was remorseful. He sentenced Rafi to 15 years, but suspended all but a two-year term to be followed by five years of probation. This is a huge drop from the maximum penalty of 20 years. Rafi told reporters after the hearing that he still believed he had done the right thing. He thought he was keeping his friend from going through 12 to 24 hours of hell before he died. When the judicial system was done with Rafi, he said, My relationship with God, since this has happened, has been strained to say the least. I question whether or not I'll be having any conversations with God after what happened to us in the canyon. Rafi may not have received a life sentence, but he is going to have to live with his actions, which I'm sure hasn't been easy. Most of the information I've shared with you today comes from Jason Kirsten, author of The Journal of the Dead, a story of friendship and murder in the New Mexico desert. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to my newest Patreon, Rochelle R. I appreciate you so much, as well as everyone who has been so very kind to share the podcast across social media. Speaking of social media, Twisted Travel and True Crime is on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can go to those places to find pictures that go with today's episode. Thanks again, and to all of you, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.